Hello and welcome to another episode of Positive Policy. Um, typically won't be uh, posting two days in a row, but um, reason for doing that this week is twofold. Uh, with this being a new podcast, I would like for the listeners to have a little bit more content before I go to strictly weekly posting. Um, and also because I want to try out a different structure. You know, yesterday I covered a lot of topics in a little bit of time. And I think some stories warrant a little more um, time spent just on them. So I want to try going with um, a structure where I just cover one topic. Um, and then, of course, the uh, you know good news story of the week um, that I always want to make sure to put in. So um, today... I wanted to talk a little bit, little bit more about the debt ceiling and what that means to you know the country and also the world. Um, I mentioned it a little bit yesterday, but I think of everything that I mentioned yesterday, that's one that really warrants um, a little bit more attention because, I mean, it really is a big deal. It can't honestly be overstated how important it is that we raise the, the debt ceiling um, at this time. So... That's what we're going to talk about today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Let's start with a little bit of background. The debt ceiling is the maximum amount of money that the U.S. government is allowed to borrow. Um, it's currently uh, $31 trillion. It was last raised in October of 2021, and we have had standoffs regarding raising the ceiling before, most recently in 2013. And the scarier one just before that in 2011. And we're going to talk about that a little bit shortly. The U.S. government relies on debt spending for a number of things, from entitlement programs like Social Security uh, and Medicare to um, defense spending um, and just generally paying the bills and the obligations that the United States is legally has to pay. So it is important that the United States maintains um, good credit and so the, the credit markets don't freeze up and the money keeps flowing. So the current situation is that we are going to hit the debt ceiling on January 19th, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen as of yesterday. That's not such a big worry. The Treasury has some measures at its disposal that it can use to keep funding the government through at least June, she, she said. Um, those measures aren't great. They include things like um, dipping into retirement funds uh, for some federal workers um, and not reinvesting some funds into other retirement accounts. So, while those will be made whole again, according to uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen, um, that is never a great option when you have to start digging into retirement funds to be able to pay your bills. However, the effects of a U.S. default would be catastrophic, so not paying those bills really isn't an option. We need only look back to 2011 to see even the threat of a default can royal financial markets, and cause widespread damage uh, throughout the credit markets, the stock markets, and generally the entire financial sector and U.S. economy. During the standoff in 2011, which ultimately ended up in avoiding a default, mortgage rates rose by about 0.7%, which can 
add a great amount of financial burden to people taking out home loans at that time. Um, and then they only came down slowly after the default was inevitably um, avoided. So that's one uh, damaging aspect. You also have the stock markets, which feel a lot of pain, which can really hurt a lot of our retirement accounts, our personal accounts, and just generally cause undue financial pain um, on the American people. So with just the issues that can arise from a standoff that ultimately ends in avoiding a default, the default itself would be far, far worse. Uh, Moody's Analytics has actually estimated that the overall impact on the country in the in the short term um, would be similar to the Great Recession of 2008 with uh, GDP falling by about 4%, unemployment rising to 9%, and a loss of 6 million jobs. Beyond that, many of the services that the government provides would be at risk of immediate loss. Um, so we're looking at Social Security payments that so many retirees rely on to make ends meet, uh, Medicare and Medicaid services that people rely on to pay the medical bills, uh, veterans benefits out the window that millions of veterans rely on to receive medical and mental health services. Um, and, you know, it, it goes even deeper than that. You know, defense spending, so uh, the salaries paid to active duty service members would be at risk. Um, any sort of other services like the National Weather Service, uh, GPS services would be affected. Just things that seem almost automatic throughout society would be at risk of a total loss. And while, you know, you can look back at the Great Recession and say, well, we got through that, so could we get through this? Probably, but the problem is that the United States federal government helped out a lot. They passed a lot of stimulus measures. The Federal Reserve uh, ha loosened monetary policy. But in the event of a federal default, the government would be powerless to do anything because they wouldn't be able to pay any salaries. They wouldn't have any access to credit markets. And they would just be able to stand back and watch as the U.S. economy fell into, at best, a deep recession. This event would also devastate the global economy because while having less than 5% of the world's population, the U.S. consumes, uh, I believe, 17% of the world's energy and accounts for 15% of global GDP. So when U.S. consumers are hurting, anybody who produces services or goods around the world and relies on U.S. consumption, their economy is going to feel the shockwaves from ours which then their economy enters recession, and it ultimately just ends up in this, this cycle of recession that um, is just going to devastate the global economy. And while the U.S. will receive a credit downgrading and lose access to credit markets in the short term, this would take decades to recover from, um, you know, even if the government only had a default for like one month. So it's really not an option. You don't play with the debt ceiling. It's not a political football. But that's exactly what it seems that the GOP House majority wants to do, is, you know, play a game of chicken with the U.S. debt. Um, and what they're wanting is a balanced budget. 
in order to raise the debt ceiling. Well, first off, to raise the debt ceiling, you get nothing. We raise the debt ceiling or we default and plunge the economy into recession. So really, I mean, you know, it's going to be imperative for Democrats to not move on this because you cannot allow people to hijack the debt ceiling, no matter which side of the political spectrum they're on, just Democrats generally, you know, don't try to fuck around with the debt ceiling. So um, they want a balanced budget, which of course sounds great, right, in theory. But the way they want to balance the budget is by cutting in spending on entitlement programs um, and in a number of other areas. Uh, but, you know, specifically, we're looking at Social Security and Medicare. Um, I know Representative uh, Byron Donalds of the GOP, I think he actually suggested to privatize Social Security. And I, for one, don't want the assholes on Wall Street doling out my Social Security when I reach retirement age. So that, for me, is a non-starter. This is a political hotbed that they're they're lying in, honestly, uh, because it is widely unpopular to mess with the entitlement spending. Uh, these are things that people have earned throughout their working lives, and it's just not something you're going to get in order to raise the debt ceiling. Now, we're going to start digging into a little bit of what I think is a more viable option, because I don't think that you can just perpetually raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling. You know, it's at $31 trillion now. You know, what does a $100 trillion debt ceiling even look like? Am I right? You know, that's these are astronomical, outlandish, almost theoretical amounts of money. So I do think that something needs to be done so that we're not always so reliant on debt spending. Um, but I don't think that it needs to come from cutting government spending uh, because the government provides a wide range of services um, and financial assistance to families in need, veterans, retirees. It's just, you know, that that's a non-starter. So what are some other options? Well, if the government can't cut spending, then what they've got to do is raise revenue. And this might be, might sound like it's easier said than done, but it's not. So it's long past time that, you know, the top earners started, you know, pulling their weight a little bit, paying their fair share of taxes. And, you know, it's really not as easy as just, you know, raising the income tax. I mean, you know, their income tax rate is already pretty high, so we got to get a little more creative. And the way you do that is, you know, by closing up the loopholes, increasing enforcement, and, you know, looking at the stock market. So let's go through this a little bit. Um, As far as closing loopholes goes, these top earners, the 1%, 0.1%, the 0.01%, they're really good at tax avoidance. And, you know, that's not evasion. These are legal ways that they, you know, get around paying taxes. So you've got you've got to close those loopholes, which is going to, of course, require an act of Congress who are, you know, quite possibly some of the people that are avoiding, you know, their taxes. So we'll see. We'll see what's what's going to happen there. But looking at the enforcement um, aspect of this, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act actually does a little bit of this by giving more funding to the IRS, um, and then the Treasury Secretary has given them a mandate to use the additional funding to ensure that individuals 
uh, making over $400,000 a year, are paying the taxes that they owe. So whenever you hear talk about 87,000 armed IRS agents to come after the working class, that's not what it is. It is additional money that the IRS needs to fill positions where people are retiring from um, and also, you know, to ramp up their ability to enforce tax pay- tax payment. So, you know, I-, I think that there will, we will see some uh, good benefits from that. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because, you know, we're the government loses out on a lot of revenue from uh, tax avoidance. So hoping to see some benefit from that. But we got to go further, you know, uh, just getting people to pay the taxes that they already should be paying. It's not going to be enough to, you know, um, take care of closing that gap for what the government spends. So I'm going to talk a little bit about something that I actually had proposed in my thesis when I was finishing up my master's degree, and that is a financial transaction tax. This is, you know, where you can really hone in on where big money is. You know, the stock markets, there's so much money that moves through. I mean, you know, you look at companies like Apple that have trillion-dollar valuations, you know, just based on the value of their stock. Massive amounts of money moves through the stock market every single day. And if you look at a financial transaction tax, that is a tax on, well, you know, you guessed it, financial transactions, especially in the stock and bond markets, you can raise massive quantities of money. What I had suggested in my thesis was a 1% tax on financial transactions in these markets. So what that looks like is for every $100 transacted, you pay $1 in taxes. You know, so the burden's not high, and it's going to be largely carried by the... uh, top earners. Um, I believe it's like 87% of U.S. stocks are held by the top 10% of earners. I mean, that's that's a massive disparity. So you're not going to see a lot of impact on, you know, those that can't afford to be paying that tax, those in like the bottom 50% in the lowest income um, brackets. So that, for me, is one of the more viable options. Um when I was doing my thesis, the money raised from this tax was able to approach $1 trillion over 10 years. Some argue that if you impose this tax, you're going to see a decrease in market activity. I think that those concerns are overblown with the U.S. market being, um, you know, far and away the best market in the world. But let's assume there is a reduction in activity. If even 65% of the revenue is realized, you see $500 billion over that 10 years. This can go towards funding education, funding the entitlement programs, funding financial assistance programs, funding veterans' benefits. This is money the U.S. government could put to good use without ever having to slash spending. And that's just one idea. You know, there are a number of different taxes, a number of different mechanisms that the government could use to increase its revenue. That's just one that I'm partial to, uh, you know, with having done some research on it and looked into it a little bit. I think it's a viable option that, you know, doesn't put any undue burden on the lower income uh, individuals or on the working class because it's, you know, largely going to be concentrated at the top 10%. So, 
I think that it, it would be something good to implement. Of course, it would require an act of Congress. And as we know, uh, you know, Congress, they they love to trade stocks. So, you know, we'll see if anything like that would ever happen. I believe there currently is a financial transaction tax, but not not nearly to, uh, you know, the extent of a 1% tax. So it's, it's minimal, and I think that that's something that we should look to increase. Regardless of how the federal government chooses to address the issue of the debt spending in the future 5, 10, 20 years from now, there is still the front and center issue of the debt ceiling, you know, today. And, you know, I just want to emphasize again that you get nothing on the debt ceiling. There is no negotiation. It is a must-do, a must-pass, because too many livelihoods are at stake, too many programs are at stake, too much is at stake on that. So I would just urge the House of Representatives to not go down the path that it looks like they may try to go down. Do not play chicken on the debt ceiling. Now, transitioning to a bit of good news. I'm a big-time foodie, and I love supporting local businesses, so I was happy to hear about this story. Uh, In Las Vegas, Nevada, there is a pizzeria called Frankincense, uh, owned and operated by Frank Steele, and it opened last year. Um, it, It had apparently been struggling to attract customers, Apparently, he was lucky to do $400 a day. But then an employee contacted TikTok food reviewer Keith Lee and letting, let him know about the struggles of the pizzeria. So Keith Lee goes in, tries the food, loves every bit of it, says it's some of the best wings he's ever had, and it the video racked up tens of millions of views. And now Frank Steele is having the problem of running out of food. So, the fortunes have turned in his favor, and, uh, you know, we love to see that. I, myself, worked at a local restaurant um, all through grad school, and, you know, I just, I love to see people supporting local businesses, and I would encourage you listeners to go out and support local businesses in your community as much as you can, Um, you know, especially over these next coming years as, you know, we face any sort of economic uncertainty, Uh, you know, go out. Um, you know, avoid the chains if you can, and uh, help out the community where the money's going to stay there. So that's just great. Now, speaking of food, um, you know, I wanted to take this opportunity again to, uh, you know, uh, shout out a charity. And, you know, I want I want to make it clear, I don't get anything for this. I just think, you know, it's important to raise awareness regarding these things so and I you know want to make it a part of this podcast as much as possible so this episode I want to uh you know shout out feeding America uh you know there are 34 million people facing hunger in the United States that includes more than 9 million children and feeding America you know they do a lot of work to help combat that food insecurity so you know I would encourage all all the listeners to go out check out their website Uh, You can donate, find food banks, volunteer, uh, fundraise, so many opportunities to uh, get involved. So definitely go check that out. And let's all do our part to help fight food insecurity. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, Appreciate it. I will probably post again, uh, you know, come uh, Friday. So going to be going to weekly. I hope you enjoyed this segment. And I would love to hear um, from the listeners. 
uh, regarding, you know, any topics you might want me to cover or, you know, which formats you liked better for the show. Um, so you can reach out at positivepolicypodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be watching for that. So thanks again, everybody, and stay positive.